Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Labor Day has just passed. Traditionally, the U.S. presidential campaign now begins in earnest. I don't know about you, but the prospect of the next few months depresses me. Thinking about where American presidential politics is today and where it was when I was a kid, there's such a falling off. So I thought I would look backwards into my archives. In 2016, I did a series for the BBC called All My Presidents, five podcast-length talks looking at all the presidents of my lifetime, starting with Dwight David Eisenhower. Not so much biographies, but reminiscences of the impact the men made on the country and on me. I won't come back after the talk is over, so I will do the commercial now. Please visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, click on the donate button, and make a donation. They really do help me keep the podcasts coming. And also, please tell your friends to listen. If you told ten people, and they told ten people, and so on, the FRDH community would really grow. Thanks. And now, All My Presidents, Part 1. The President of the United States has long been called the most powerful person in the world, but really, just how much power does the President have? America's political structure was designed to prevent the President becoming a monarch. Checks and balances on his power were put in place. Congress and the Supreme Court can both foil a President's plans for the country. The real power of Presidents is social and cultural. Presidents, their personalities, their words, shape America's collective sense of itself. The details of their policies often go unremembered, but how a president spoke, what he looked like, how he comported himself in office, linger in the memory and shape a sense of each individual American's life. Times were good when Ike was in charge, or times were bad when Carter was president. Actually, they weren't that awful, but high inflation kills happy memories stone dead. Sometime in the mid-1980s, I'm not sure of the year, but it was not long after I moved to Britain, I was watching a late-night discussion program. Christopher Hitchens was on the panel, and the subject came round to John F. Kennedy. Maybe it was 1988, and the panel was marking the 25th anniversary of the president's assassination. Anyway, Hitchens became uncharacteristically emotional. He brutally dismissed the other panel members for their kind words about the murdered leader. He recalled the utter fear and anger he felt as a 12-year-old schoolboy during the Cuban Missile Crisis that this man, Kennedy, might blow the whole world up. With the benefit of hindsight, he was able to remind fellow panelists of the myriad hypocrisies of JFK and the myths about him only the credulous believed. Watching, I was taken completely by surprise. Hitchens was only a year older than me. I'd even met him once in Washington, and he was a man of exceptionally good humor and manners. This violent anger was very out of character. By then, he had established himself as one of the premier interpreters of America to Britain, yet he seemed to be missing something in his understanding of Kennedy. The man's importance wasn't so much about policy and legislative accomplishments. JFK hadn't been in office three years at the time of his murder, not much time to build a legacy. It was about other things, symbolic things. It was about a generational changing of the guard. 
like Hitchens and myself, Kennedy and my parents were of an age, and I remember their excitement, my mother's especially. She thought he was very good-looking, about one of their own in the top job. There wasn't a great deal left to debunk about JFK in the mid-1980s. The womanizing, the lies about his health, the Bay of Pigs, his family fortune made in bootlegging, the entitlement, the false glitter of Camelot were all well known. Except in its time, Camelot, in my household, wasn't seen as false. And the grief when the man was shot wasn't the grief of fools who lacked an Oxford graduate's highly developed sense of skepticism. It was unlike any I have ever encountered since. I've been blessed in that my people are long-lived, and when my parents and my grandparents passed away, the grief was ameliorated by the knowledge that they had lived their full span and come to their rest naturally. The violent taking away of the president in his mid-forties was a shock at the time. What I thought, watching Hitchens on that program, was you don't understand America if you don't understand that the president any president, is much more of a cultural and social presence in American lives than a political one. I have lived in 12 presidencies, and all my presidents, in real time as it happened and in memory, have shaped the part of my identity concerned with what it means to be an American. Presidents are the way we are introduced to politics, not quite at the breast, but when we're children. At presidential elections, we're inducted into our tribes, Democrats, Republicans, and I suppose today don't make a damn bit of difference which one by the way our parents vote and also the way they speak about the president. My tribe is the Democrats, the Democrats of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal. My tribal induction came at the age of six standing in a queue with my parents on a gray, chilly November morning outside the Dalton School on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, our polling place. It is 1956, and they have taken me with them to give me my first lesson in civic responsibility. You vote. My parents are voting for Adlai Stevenson, the Democrat. That puts them in a minority in this neighborhood. Back then, the East Side was blue-blood old money. It was the most reliably Republican district in this overwhelmingly Democratic city. Most of the people in the line like Ike, Dwight David Eisenhower, the Republican president standing for re-election. My father tried to explain the difference between the two tribes. I was confused. Eisenhower sounded like a Jewish name. All German names sounded Jewish to me when I was six. He was bald, like my grandfather, and seemed as amiable. So why would you not vote for him? We did not get into the more detailed discussion of the policy differences that defined our two tribes. That would come later. The acute variance being how much of the New Deal should be maintained now that the Great Depression was over. I would learn early that the Republicans were trying to turn back the clock, Defending the New Deal was the keystone of the post-war Democratic Party. In 1952, Stevenson had run against Eisenhower, and that had been his pitch. His posters asked, which will be safer for you, the party of Hoover, Republicans, or the party of Roosevelt, Democrats? They had a list of all the bad things Herbert Hoover had presided over in 1932 at the start of the Great Depression, and all the good things that Roosevelt had established that made life in 1952 so much better and more secure, including Social Security. Didn't matter. 
Stevenson lost in a landslide in 1952, and when the ballots were counted at the end of this day, when I learned my first duty as a citizen was to vote, he had lost by an even bigger margin. In my home, that was the end of the story. The world carried on. That was a civics lesson as well. Sometimes your tribe loses. The president is still your president. Not every society is so sanguine about election results. Ike's smiling, bald-headed image continued to beam down on me. The face of a man who reminded me of my grandfather was in the post office and on TV. And if I was reasonably happy then, Ike's face is wrapped up with memory of the times. That is how presidents shape an American sense of themselves. By the time the next election came around, in 1960, my father had made me more aware of my civic responsibilities and my tribal loyalty. He let me stay up late to watch the Kennedy-Nixon debates. I can still hear Pop excitedly shouting to my mother, who was not watching, Honey, come look at old Kennedy wipe the floor with Nixon. Kimoy and Matsu. Do you know what those words refer to? Half a century later, they're glued to the inside of my skull look them up. One Saturday, Nixon and Kennedy were campaigning a few miles apart in the Philadelphia suburb to which we had moved. We went as a family to the Kennedy rally at Balakinwood Shopping Center. Two memories linger half a century later. The reddish-orange color of JFK's hair and my mother, in an eerie foreshadowing of an image none of us could imagine, trying to climb onto the back of the limousine in which he was being whisked away, like some frantic fangirl. She just wanted to touch him. When Kennedy won, the feeling in our house, among all my extended family, was that equilibrium had been restored. The party of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal were back in charge. A heavy snow fell up and down the East Coast just before Kennedy's inauguration, and schools were closed. The day itself was cold and bright. The sky was cobalt. My father and brothers and I played outside, Snowball fights, jumping in drifts until the ceremony began. Then we went in and watched. What is never forgotten? The poet Robert Frost, in his mid-80s, unable to read the poem he had written for the occasion because the glare off the snow and the capital's white marble balustrades made it impossible for his old eyes to see. A kerfuffle and some mutterings, and then he puts the poem aside and recites from memory the gift outright. The land was ours before we were the lands. Now all of these presidential memories shaped me and even today frame my understanding of America. One weekend in October 1963, my father was invited to present a paper at a medical conference in Hershey, Pennsylvania, a 90-minute drive from our home, and he decided to take the whole family, including his four children, for the weekend. Hershey was the chocolate center of the universe, home to the factories that cranked out the eponymous candy bars and foil-wrapped kisses. Its founder, Milton Hershey, was a 19th-century-style compassionate capitalist who had built a company town for his workers. During the Great Depression, he hired unemployed artisans to build a grand hotel in the Spanish mission style that had become popular in California and Florida. The Hotel Hershey sat atop a hill with manicured lawns rolling up and down in all directions. There were palm trees. The tiled lobby was two stories high, with a mezzanine for promenading and a splashing fountain. 
It was a huge place, and because it was out of season, we were the only family there. Other than the medical conference, there didn't seem to be a lot of activity. In the basement was a nine-pin bowling alley, and my younger brothers and I spent hours skittling the pins over. On the Saturday night, though, there was a great deal of activity. Limousines coming and going. The lobby filled up with men in tuxedos. What's happening? The president is coming. No, not Kennedy. Eisenhower. Ike lived on a farm an hour's drive south in Gettysburg. He was holding one of his occasional stag nights at the hotel. Throughout his career, in the army and later as president, Eisenhower would gather colleagues and pals, scholars and businessmen, for liquor, cigars, and exchange of ideas. When he had power, Ike used these events as a way to break out of the bubble and hear opinions from outside the White House. This particular gathering was of Republican Party grandees, however, and my guess is that the conversation that evening was all politics. The following year would be an election year, and they would have been talking about who the party would nominate to face Kennedy. We lurked around the lobby looking for Ike, but never saw him. Sunday morning, we, my mother and brothers, were sitting on the long front porch, not doing much, killing time while my father took care of some medical business. My mother was reading a book. A group of men in suits was walking down on the lawn, Eisenhower and Nixon among them. As I said, my mother had fangirl tendencies. She handed her book to my nine-year-old brother and told him to go get their autographs. He did, and others beside. Today, in a box in his basement, is an unframed picture taken by an Associated Press photographer of Ike shaking hands with my nine-year-old brother. At my sister's house is a copy of Morris L. West's The Shoes of the Fisherman, wrapped in cling film. Inside are the autographs of Dwight David Eisenhower and assorted other figures who were leaders of the Republican Party in the days when people went to the polls every four years to elect a president and, if their man lost, accepted the result without complaint and got on with life. A month later, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. John Dodds, head teacher at Welsh Valley Junior High School, broke the news to us over the tannoy. He called on us to act like Americans, although he didn't define what acting like an American meant. I've been trying to figure it out for half a century. These were my first presidents. Eisenhower, benign as my beloved grandfather. Kennedy, whose murder unbalanced America, and I think sometimes the society is still trying to find its equilibrium, trying to figure out what it means to be American. None of my subsequent presidents have been able to define it.